Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Hey, welcome here. Happy Memorial Day. My name is Jeremy. We're delighted you're here to worship with us. Um, that was some beautiful music this morning. I don't know if you heard that or not, but yeah. I think somewhere in there you should have heard the good news of Jesus. And so I'm really excited to sing songs like that, that lift him up and proclaim what he did in exchange for what we did. Uh, the artistry was beautiful as well. Thank you for the lights. Today we're going to talk about art a little bit. Even if you don't consider yourself a artsy person, then I'll explain to you some of the basic things about art that will help you understand how it works a little bit in the next few moments. But before I begin my sermon... I would be remiss if I did not welcome a few special people here today. Is there anyone here, this is May, it's around Memorial Day, is anyone here who, let's say, is perhaps engaged to be married? Anybody here engaged to be married? Okay, young lady, when is your marriage date? November 2nd. Okay, that's nice. Are there any anniversaries that were celebrated this last week? Any anniversaries? How long was it, Lynn? 38 years. Wow. And back. That's good. That is impressive. Way to go, Carol. All right. (laughs) Christine, what was your anniversary date this week? 25 years on the 21st. Way to go, Troy and Christine. Good job. Uh, I have to mention, I'm not trying to be self-serving. That's why I gave everybody else a chance to go first, but... Uh, today, May 26th, is actually Robin and I's 18th anniversary. So, thank you, Robin. Yeah. Love you. Thank you. She has put up with a lot, indeed. And I'm definitely a better person for it. Um, and also, there's someone else very special here today that I think you've heard me talk about my parents before. For those of you who are just joining us in the last year or so, you don't know the whole story, but my dad went to heaven in November of 2017 uh, as a result of Alzheimer's. And my mom is here today, so I got a picture of mom and dad together at their 60th. Here's a picture of mom and dad. Yeah, so mom, thank you and welcome. We're glad to have you. She hasn't been able to travel because she cared for him uh, up until the end, so thank you. Mom. So today I want to talk to you about something a little bit artistic. And I used a picture just a moment ago. A picture is what we're probably most used to because we have our iPhones nearby or whatever. And we whip them out and we push a button and we get a picture. But long before the iPhone was this thing called a painting. And a painting could be used in a number of different ways. One is it could be used abstractly. You could just do art in a strange sort of way that leads people to interpret what it is. And another way you could do it, though, is you could do a portrait. Like if a prince or a king or a queen commissioned you, they would expect you to draw them. And of course, you would draw them in a little bit of a flattering sort of way, but not so flattering that it looks like disproportionate, but flattering nonetheless. And people who look at that portrait then should be able to recognize the representative, uh, the person who it's showing. And so a portrait is essentially this. A portrait is not the original. 
It's not the subject, but it's something that portrays something. And by seeing it, you should be able to recognize the original when you do. You see the portrait on the wall. You're like, okay, I see that. That person walks in the room. You say, ah, there they are. There's the king. There's the queen. There's the prince. I see that. I recognize it. Well, today we're going to talk about a portrait that God paints for all of humanity. One that he started with before the foundation of the earth, Ephesians tells us. And one that he placed indelibly in the image in which he created us. In male and female, he painted this portrait, this unique design to portray something else. And so I want to walk you through that portrait today. And using those terms of art, that's how we will move. Here's an outline of the sermon. Here are the three points that we're going to cover. We're going to look at, first of all, how to paint a portrait. And then the first thing we'll see when we talk about painting is you need a subject. Like, if you're painting, you either have in your mind or you are looking at something that you are trying to portray. There is a subject. There is something there that you're trying to portray. Secondly, there's often a purpose. Like, an artist, if, if you go to an art museum, I try to look a little snooty sometimes. I don't really know what I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, sure. You know, I don't know. That's what the people who know about art are doing, so I try to do it too. But I think what I'm told is usually there's an intent. Like you're looking at this artwork and you're saying, what is the author trying to communicate here? What are they saying? Notice the shades and the strokes and the colors and the light and how is this all forming together a unified whole to tell me something was it trying to say what am i interpreting and am i understanding what the author is getting at that's that's the purpose of this portrait or painting and then thirdly if you're going to paint it not only do you need the subject that you're trying to portray and not only do you need the purpose that the thing that you're trying to communicate but you also need some basic tools of artistic composition you need to understand symmetry how does this work you know if i i paint something i'm trying to be a realist not a surrealist or whatever and i paint something with a super long leg and a really short leg or whatever people say um your painting is a little off there's something wrong with that there's proportion issues there's balance issues there's a lack of symmetry that's not right that makes me feel weird like we need to correct that that's symmetry Something could be intentionally asymmetrical, but if so, you're doing that on purpose to communicate something. In other words, you follow these guidelines unless you're intentionally breaking the rule for some reason. And so, those are the three guidelines that we're going to look at today. How to paint a portrait, the subject, the purpose, and the guidelines of symmetry. So let's start with the subject. What is the subject that we are talking about today? Well, in our church, we're working through the book of Ephesians, almost done. Beautiful book, portraying God's plan for all of creation. And in that plan, one of the big subjects is something called redemption. Redemption. And here's here's the subject then of our portrait or our painting. This is the mystery. This mystery is profound. Before the foundation of the world, chapter 1 tells us there's this thing that God is doing. What is it? What is God's intention for humanity? Well, the mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers, the mystery refers to Christ and the church, the two players in this act, in this drama, in this cosmic revelation, are Christ and the church. So in other words, what are you saying? Well, he's saying the subject is redemption. The subject is redemption. Now, I know that's probably not a word 
we use every day. It's not one we hear in commercials. It's not one in common parlance. But let me give you Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition of what redemption is. And as you listen to this definition, imagine in the back of your mind the realistic picture of humanity and sin and Jesus and salvation. And put those two together. So hear that as I read this definition. There's humanity, sin, brokenness, fallen, enslaved. And Jesus, perfect, only begotten, son of the living God. How does redemption play into that? This is a dictionary definition. Not Christian or anything. Just what the dictionary says. Says this. Redemption is to buy back or to win back as God purchased humanity. Redemption is to free from distress or harm. To free from captivity by a payment of ransom. Redemption is to extricate from or help to overcome something that is detrimental. We all need redemption. We need help. We need to overcome. It is to release from blame or debt, to free from the consequence of sin, to change for the better. Yes, give me that. It is to repair and restore as in a broken relationship, to remove the obligation of payment To exchange that which is worthless for something of value. To atone for. To offset the bad effect. To make worthwhile. That is what I want. That is what I want for my life. I want redemption. I want this brokenness bought back. I want to be restored. I want it to be worthwhile. I want to be freed. And able to live. I need a redeemer And this is one of the great pictures of the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Ruth. And it's a beautiful picture of an ancient concept that we don't practice in in my culture, in our culture at all today. And that's called the kinsman redeemer. And in this practice, what happens is this. You know, the the clan, the family, the tribe is, is really this big unit. And as a result, what happens is if one person gets in trouble, like they have this compound this family farm say someone gets in trouble they have a debt they can't pay back they get hurt they can't work the fields they owe they're in trouble if they're left to themselves then inevitably what happened is their person who they owed money to would come to them and say okay pay up and they say i'm sorry i can't so okay well here's your option you can uh, give me your daughter you can sell me your sons or you can yourself go into slavery what would you like to earn it back and If they don't have any other options, then they will go into slavery. However, if they have an extended family that has some means, then it's a legal obligation on another family member to come into that picture and say, no, I will buy them back. I will pay their debt. I will be their kinsman, their brother, their uncle, their cousin, their whatever, their redeemer. I will be the one that comes into the picture and saves them from the stress and applies all of the things we just heard And that definition, at my own expense, I will buy them back. That's the idea of the kinsman redeemer. Maybe someday we'll look at the beautiful book of Ruth and see how that plays out even thousands of years before the time of Christ. But here today, understand that concept that in the ancient mind, there is the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And then understand how that transposes itself onto the relationship of Christ in the church. We as Christians constantly emphasize the fact that Jesus Christ is a hundred percent God and what? Hundred percent man. You know why? He has to be in order to be our kinsman, redeemer. If he is not 
fully God and fully man, he is no longer able to be our kinsman. He is no longer to be God's kinsman. He's something else. But for Christianity to work, he has to be our brother. He has to buy us back. And he does so like this. Mark ten forty five says, this is how God, Jesus, redeemed us. It says, for even as the Son of Man came not to be served, understand that here's the definition of love, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as the ransom for many. Here's the subject of the portrait that God is painting today in Ephesians chapter 5, that Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer, that redemption means there is this kinsman and there is this bride and he's coming back to save her from distress and purchase and redeem her. So the subject that we talk about today, number one, is redemption. Why am I going to great lengths? You'll see in just a minute, because I have some pretty significant, even perhaps, yea, hard things to say to men and women. And I want to make sure to paint this picture really clear up front so you know who's saying it. Not me, but the Lord. This is God's word. And he starts like this. He says, here's, here's what I'm portraying. Redemption. Then, let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this. Um, if I were to say to you, okay, you, we're in our time period. We have this perspective of history and stuff like this. If you were to paint a picture, I would say, okay, come up on stage. You may or may not be an artist. Paint me a picture of redemption as we've just defined it. How would you paint it? Feel free to raise a hand or shout it out. How, what would you paint as a picture of redemption? The cross. That's a big one. The cross. Redemption. Boom. Any others? An empty grave. There's another good one. Any others? What's that? Noah's Ark, did you say? Good, that's another good one. We're not a very creative bunch this morning, I think. But here's the thing. There's a number of things you could say. You could say the cross, Noah's Ark, an empty grave. That's very literal. You know, if we go to some of these competitions, sometimes the judges say, I don't want literal, I want something else. You know, say, okay, maybe I could portray someone like perhaps on a slave ship and they're assuming that they're going to be in trouble. And then there's this incredible moment when someone comes aboard and buys them and frees them and lets them go. That would be a very literal picture, but you know what God paints? He surprises all of us. He paints something very different than that. He, he does paint the cross and he does paint redemption and freedom, but he doesn't do it literally like that. Instead, he does it in a very artistic way. The picture that God paints of redemption is a man and a wife. A male and a female. The picture that God paints of redemption is marriage. That's what he would portray. If you'd ask Jesus, draw a picture of redemption, he wouldn't draw the cross. He wouldn't draw the empty grave. He wouldn't draw this. He'd draw a man and a female, perhaps a wedding. You follow that theme through scripture, you'll see it over and over again, but particularly today in Ephesians chapter 5, here's the symmetry of this, here's the Hebrew parallelism, here's the comparison, here's the model. If you're a science person, you're like, I need a model, give me a model. Here's the model. Look, here's the slide. Marriage portrays redemption. Here's how it works in this passage. Redemption 
is Christ in the church. Here's the two players. These two things make up redemption. Here's what God says redemption is literally. Then, metaphorically, artistically, symbolically, he says, this is how I will represent it. This is what it should look like. Marriage. A male and a female. Husband and a wife. That's the parallelism in this passage. Here's another slide more artistically portrayed. Thanks to Sarah Steele and our graphic design team. Marriage portrays redemption. Look, as redemption is to marriage, Christ and the church are to husbands and wives. If you want the slide later, you can go to our website and download it. So the subject that we're talking about is redemption. The portrayal of that subject is marriage, male and female. Now, if that is the case, then if you're like me, you'd say, okay, well, what does marriage look like then? And the answer is very simple. Marriage should look like Christ in the church. It should be a redemptive marriage. Your marriage should be portraying the gospel. In other words, listen to this. When you do marriage, you're doing evangelism. Do you hear that? When you do marriage right, you should be communicating the gospel. Marriage is evangelism. This is God's picture of Christ in the church. Of the Savior, Redeemer, who sacrifices himself for the one he loves. And the one he loves, bowing in submission, following him fully, and serving him as Lord. That's the picture of Christ in the church, husband and wife. Marriage is redemption. So then, what I'll do in the next few minutes is this. I'm going to address husbands. And wives, husbands for a bit, wives for a bit, and then we'll see if I'm still pastor here when I'm done. (laughs) But it's actually good. It's the Lord's word, and I try to stay as close to it as possible. And um, my question then is this. I've already given the slides operator a heads up, said we could go one way or the other. And what I'd like to ask you this morning is, who do you want me to talk to first? And just, and so I'm from Missouri and sometimes they do these silly corny shows like Branson, you know, stuff. And they'll say, okay, whoever makes the most noise, this side win or is this side win? So I want to do just a little bit of that. And so here's the thing. The Bible, this is the way the Bible approaches it. The Bible goes, um, children and parents and then servants and masters and then wives and husbands. And that symmetry, that is intentional because it's dressing the person with the least authority and then the most authority all throughout. It's consistent. The children as to parents, servants at the masters, wives to husbands. That's the function. But today I thought about it two ways. I thought, well, shoot. There's also this economy of narrative thing where the more space that something is given in scripture, then the more you're supposed to pay attention to it. If it's just a little blip, then it's not as significant. And the men in this passage, boy, Paul gives them multiple verses, just verse after verse after verse after verse. To get the idea, guys, you really ought to pay attention. Women, it's just a short little thing. So I'm like, okay, so what do I do? I dress the women first because they're first. Or do I address the men first because there's more space? So instead of me making that decision, I'd like to ask you to make that decision for me. And so whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's your fault. (laughs) That's the way you do it, right? So 
just by show of hands or noise or whatever, who wants the men to go first? Address the men first. Okay. That was kind of weak. We'll see what happens here. Who thinks there's ladies that should go first? Ladies first. Okay. I don't know. I guess I'm going with the ladies first. All right. Ready? Slides operators. Here we go. So. Ephesians 5.22. I'm just reading the word of the Lord to you. It says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm not going to make any excuses for that. I'm not going to make any apologies. And I'm not going to pull back. Wives. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's what God's word says. But you're a male. You don't understand. Yeah. Okay. Maybe right. But let me tell you what I do understand is this. Let me give you some disclaimers before we go too far. Because I know immediately that word sort of makes us bristle. We think patriarchal, monarchy, you know, I'm a doormat, da 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 And that's entirely different than what the Bible is actually saying. So I want to get rid of the objections first, the negative, and then I'll tell you what the positive is. So let me address the negative. First of all, submission, according to John Stott, who's a pretty significant theologian, is not an unthinking obedience to a ruler, but instead a grateful acceptance of care. Submission is not... An unthinking obedience to a ruler, but instead a grateful acceptance of his care. It is not to submit to an ogre, but to a lover. That is what the Bible is portraying. Not an ogre, but a lover. So then, let us say, and I I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of people. I don't know all the different situations. Let's say, okay, pastor, that's what you said, but I'm married to an ogre. You may not think that, but we've had the police at our house. I am married to an ogre. Okay. All right. Given. How do we work this verse then? Well, what about abuse? Here's a slide. First one, Acts 5.29. When the apostles are ordered by their authorities to stop preaching the name of Jesus, they say, no, we must obey God rather than man. When the Hebrew midwives are ordered to kill the males born to the Jewish women, they say, no. We're going to hide them. When Daniel is ordered to stop praying, he says, no, I'm going to keep praying. There are times in our lives, in this world, where there is an unjust authority over us. The Bible recognizes that. And the Bible never calls us to violate our Christian conscience. If your husband is doing things to you or telling you to do things that are against what the Bible would say, then you say, no, now is the time for civil disobedience. It is not to grab the beer bottle and crack him over the head and cut him up with it. That's not what the Bible says. But instead, it is to take shelter, call the authorities, and get help. That's very different. So what about abuse? Well, the Bible never tells you to become a doormat. The Bible tells you to love God. And when you are loving and serving him, you only do what's in conformity with his law. Remember a few weeks ago, we we drew this picture And we put God at the top and then parents and then children. And we said, God at the top or servant or masters and servants. And really the servants are not serving the masters, but instead they're serving Christ. And so if 
the master commands something that's against Christ, the servant has to say, whoa, that doesn't fit with my ultimate authority. That's what Daniel does when the king says, stop worshiping your God. He says, no. When the Romans say to the apostles, stop preaching Jesus, they say no. When the Egyptians say to the midwives, kill your babies, they say no. There's a real case for civil disobedience within scripture. So if you're in an abusive situation, and look, I don't want to get into what defines abuse because I know there are a million different scenarios this morning. I'm not talking about someone had a bad day and they came home and said something rude. I'm talking about like a consistent pattern of verbal, physical, sexual, whatever, real abuse. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not going to try to hem that in. But I'm just saying, give us all a little slack, but don't get beat up. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you're in a situation where you're concerned, seek help. So given that, then the command remains the same. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Well, Pastor Jeremy, okay, you took care of abuse, abuse pretty well, but isn't this a bit culturally conditioned? I mean, you gotta understand, this is a long time ago. We're liberated. Ladies work, you know, da 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 da. Is the Bible just sort of, you know, contextually bound? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. In no way whatsoever. Let me show you five reasons why not. Number one, the codes, you can, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, never even mention the women. They don't even get acknowledged. Just by the fact that the Apostle Paul addresses women in the church, he understands that they're sitting together and they're equal members of the body of Christ. You can even go to other cultures like in Uganda, etc. And a lot of times the men are in chairs and women are sitting over here on the floor because they haven't got to that point yet where they understand both image bearers equal in the sight of God. You see, this text itself, by even talking to women, is countercultural. It challenges the norms of the day. This is not bound by its own culture. It is different. You can go back and read the ancient codes presented by other authors, and it's totally different than this one. They're not the same. Secondly, C.S. Lewis uses a term that I like, that he calls, and I, I like it a lot, chronological snobbery. It's basically acting like we of this era are more enlightened, more intelligent than the people who came before us because we know something they didn't. And it's true that science and discovery and progress and technology move on. But the reality is, C.S. Lewis is smarter than anybody in this room, okay? But we're not going to sit here and look back on him and say, oh, those people who learned Greek when they were eight and just read the classics and da-da-da-da, they were dumb. No. We can't judge their culture by the standards of our own. That's chronological snobbery. Secondly is logical inconsistency. If you just look at it from a logical perspective... And you say, okay, wives, you can do whatever you want. There's no authority. You're in control. Do you want to say the same thing to children? Do you want to say the same thing to your employees? Do you want to work it that way? If you do, apply the same consistent hermeneutic throughout this text and say, okay, kids, go for it. Ice cream every day, video games all the time, forget school, enjoy your life, whatever you want. No, God put parents in your life for a reason. And he's, they know something that you don't. And so they're going to train you up in order for you to benefit. That's why they're there. They're not there to serve themselves. They're there to sacrifice on your behalf. And believe it or not, kids, they actually do. <laughs> Sometimes, like I was talking to my little girl the other night. She's like, you don't love me. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Oh, you didn't let me do this. And like, I know. I made you brush your teeth and go to bed. And yeah, 
It's tough. Yes, that's what I'm here for. You know, that's why we're here is to love and sacrifice and serve. Remember, the son of man did not come to serve, but to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Parents, you're not here to be served, but to serve. Husbands, you're not here to be served, but to serve. Logically, that's what this thing implies. Secondly, you have the Trinitarian model, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he's praying before the cross, says in the garden, what? Not my, but yours. Exactly right. You see the Son submitting to the Father, and then you see the Son sending the Spirit. The Spirit submits to the Son, the Son submits to the Father, and you don't ever hear any Christian in their right mind say, oh, the Son is worth less than the Father. He's fully equal of worship. And if this is the portrayal of Christ in the church, then the woman is fully equal and worthy of all the dignity of any male. And most of us would say more. Right? Same thing with the Trinity. Finally, the creative order. When this text is applied, the Apostle Paul quotes Genesis. In other words, what he's doing is saying way before culture, way before any culture, when there was just one man and one female, this is the way it worked. So it's not a cultural thing. It's an eternal design thing. God made it this way on purpose. And the mystery is, it's not because he wants later to go, oh, wow, I got an idea. No, no, he designed marriage, listen to this, before the cross. Before the cross, God designed marriage to represent the cross. Isn't that cool? He knows what's coming, and therefore he puts this on the planet to foreshadow it and say, look at this beautiful picture of love and sacrifice, and guess what's going to happen? Love and sacrifice. That's marriage, and that's the gospel, and that's what Ephesians is trying to say. If you don't come away from today with anything else, hear this. Your marriage should look like the good news of Jesus. That's your marriage. Christ in the church, male and female. That's what your marriage should do. When people see your marriage, they go, man, that is different. What is wrong with you? We don't understand. That's marriage. It's a portrayal of the gospel, how men you love and sacrifice, and women you submit. Now, I spent a lot of time, a lot of time trying to get rid of that submission thing. I'm afraid I used up a lot of time doing that. But I want to get to some important applications before we leave so women, don't forget, here's the thing. Your job is to follow the leadership that God has placed in your life. And if you're married, that's your husband. It doesn't mean that women submit to every man they ever see. It means the leadership that God has placed in your life is your husband. Submit, follow. That's the deal. Now, let me show you one other slide. Well, how much? Maybe he's just the spiritual leader. You know, he can lead the prayer, but I control the rest, right? No. Look at how the church submits to Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 says this. Far above every, all rule and authority and power and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things, not just the spiritual things under Jesus. Jesus doesn't just get to come in in certain points of our life. He should control every area of our life under his feet and gave him as what? As head. Guess what the man is called in this passage? The head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. There's the picture that God is portraying in marriage. 
There is rule. There is authority. There is head. There is leadership. Okay? So in the same way, then, verse 22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is... Oh, boy, no one was willing to say it. (laughs) The husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. It's the same thing. Remember, we've been saying all along, Ephesians 1 sets up the theology of Ephesians 5. Why do you think I've been pounding that? Because I want you to see that this is that. The theology of 1 sets up the practical implications of chapter 5. So, ladies, follow his lead. And let me give you a little hint here. I know it's hard because I'm a male and we are not perfect. And if any of us have any brains whatsoever, we are not claiming to be perfect. I promise. And that's actually one of the hard things about leadership is because the minute you step up to do something, you know you're probably going to fail. At some point, you're going to mess up. And you do, and that other person comes in your life and says, no, 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 no. I know. <laughs> I tried. I messed up. I'm not that good at it. Give me a break. You know, and you know what that does? They just say, forget it. Never mind. You do it. Now, that's sin. We should not do that. But that's the carnal tendency of the male ego. We want to be like awesome at everything the first time. (laughs) That's what we think we are. But we know we're not. And we just need us to remind. We need you to remind us. Not that we did it wrong. We actually already know that. But that we're on the right path to getting it right. Eventually we will. Even if we didn't this time. And if you can remind us of that instead of the other, we'll go so much further. But if you remind us of what we did wrong, eh, all right, never mind. (laughs) Go for it. You dread it. And that's the thing, guys. You got to pay attention because you look at this text and it's actually got a lot more to us than to them. This has got way more to say to us. I spent a long time dealing with that submission piece, but the reality is this. The rest of the Bible, that's it on submission, but the whole rest of the Bible deals with us. And it's this. It says, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Romeo and Juliet. No, actually not. As Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her. The standard by which we are supposed to love our wives is so insanely high, it's unbelievable. Christ and the church. Absolute sacrifice of everything for her good. Remember chapter 1, the goal is to be holy and blameless. Why? To present her to him as a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. The reason you're in this marriage is not so that she can serve you, it's so that you serve her, that you are after her best interest. Does your marriage look like that? Is that how your wife would describe you? My husband is all about me. As Christ loved the church. I know that's really high. And we hear that and we're almost like, never, (laughs) not a chance. Don't worry. The apostle knows that. He understands your frailty. And so he gives you another example. So, okay, if you can't handle that, let me bring it down a level. How about this? Verse 28. In the same way, husbands love their wives as 
their own bodies, their own bodies. What does that mean? I don't love my own body. <laughs> I'm not that proud of it anymore, actually, anyways. Well, here's the thing. I'm just going to pull up my chair here. Remember a couple weeks ago I was on crutches? All right, so I got this thing on my foot right now, my leg brace. Under that is my wrap. Under that is my bandages, and I'm thankful that this week now the stitches are gone. That's a good feeling, but it's still a bit bothersome. It's tender. It's sensitive. And so what do I do? Well, I care for it. And so after my shower, I in the shower I sit down on a bench. After my shower... I wrap it up, you know, I take the butterfly things and I pull that cut tight and I put some neosporin on it, kind of massage it a little bit, try to get some of swelling and blood out of there. I rub my foot and I anoint it with oil and then I wrap it up and I put it all back together and man, I'm like, okay, foot done. And my shower routine just went from like 15 minutes to 45 minutes or whatever. You know, I'm spending all day working on this thing. Well, here's the thing. This text says, husbands, we know Christ is superior. It's hard for you to get there. Let me give you something really simple you can understand. The way you take care of your own body. So, what do I do when my foot is swollen? I elevate it. How many of you men are elevating your wives? What do I do when my foot is swollen? I put ice on it. Now, I'm not saying put ice on your wives. <laughs> that would not go well in my home. It's usually the opposite. But you've got to know your wife well enough to understand what's going to work for her. How do you make her warm? How do you make her feel loved? How do you do what you need to do to get the blood flowing in your spouse? Husbands, love your wives. Elevate them. Ice them. You know what outside my doctor tells me to do? Stay off it. Stay off her, dude. Stay off her case. She works hard. She had a long day. Don't give her any grief if things not just right. Stay off it. Leave it alone. None of your business. She has her reasons. Stay off her. What else do I do? I anoint it with oil. I massage it. Little boy. It's a PG version. How many of you have given your wife a foot rub recently? Uh, my, my foot hurts, man. I'm massaging it all day long. I'm sitting in a meeting. I'm like, oh, man, that hurts. And I read this text, and it tells me, um, same way you love your own bodies. When was the last time I gave her a foot rub? Don't answer that. <laughs> it's been a while. Conviction City, right? Then the next thing I get to do is something called physical therapy. I go, and I try to get stronger, and I do various things that are supposed to help it. How are you helping your wife to be built up? Are you her physical therapist? Are you lifting her up? Are you building her up? It doesn't mean hurt her. It means put her in a situation in which she can succeed. Build her up. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives as you love your own bodies. You see Jesus. You see his sacrifice, but you know what to do. When it hurts, help. That's a simple way to say it. When it hurts, help. When she hurts, help. Husbands, love your wives as you do your own body. And then what happens is this. Number one, so first thing is this. Pull my pant leg down. Time out. All right. First thing, 
so how do you paint a portrait? Number one, number one, the subject is redemption. That's what our marriages should look like. Number two, what are we trying to do? What's the author trying to say? Who invented marriage? Jesus, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. What's he trying to communicate through this portrait? He's trying to save redemption. And so how do we do it? We need some symmetry. We need some symmetry. Remember at the beginning, we said, look, if, if something's like out of balance, it just doesn't look right. Your marriages need to conform to these things that the male is leading, that the female is submitting. And this is, this is then a dictionary of definition of symmetry. And then I'll apply it and we'll almost be done. Almost. Here's the thing. Symmetry is this. It is the beauty of form arising out of balanced proportions. Is your marriage beautiful? Husbands, does your leadership show the balanced proportion that's described in this passage? Women, does your submission show the balanced proportion that's described in this passage? Does your marriage have symmetry? Next, it says correspondence. Listen to this. Correspondence. Symmetry is correspondence. The relative position of parts on opposite sides of a dividing line or median plane or about a center of axis. Who is the center of axis of your marriage? How are you conforming around that? Is it just, boom, wow, she's the boss and I do whatever she says. That's out of balance. Or he's the boss and I just become a doormat. That's out of balance. If Jesus Christ and the church are the center of access, then there is love and leadership and sacrifice and mute and submission. And that's imbalance. That's symmetry. The property for the last one, last part of this. So property, listen to this. Symmetry is the property of remaining invariant under certain changes as orientation in space or the direction of time or flow. How, how long was it, Lynn, that you guys have been married this morning? 38 years. 38 years. Have there been any changes over 38 years? Okay, that's what I thought. There's been some variable circumstances. There's been some changes of orientation in space. There's been some changes over time. But what symmetry is, is faithfulness throughout. That there's no change in the relationship, even if everything else changes. Well, back then, no, no, no. The better or worse, till death do us part, all that stuff. That's symmetry. No change over any variation whatsoever. Here's what the Bible says to you today. Listen carefully, church. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way also, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Guys, you know how to do that. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, at the beginning of time, before any of this other stuff ever started, Genesis says, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. Here's the mystery. Here's the point. Here's the portrait. We're not talking about male and female and reproduction and other stuff. I'm actually saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's marriage. It refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she loves and respects her husband. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is marriage. This is what it's supposed to look like. Now, I have a whole other page I'm going to leave out for time, but there's all kinds of stuff on our website, marriage assessments, books, classes, mentors, etc. If you go to adultministriesmefchurch.org, you can get some of that. These are tools like paintbrushes and your palette to help you paint your marriage. We want to equip you. We want to give you things to help you do well. Go to our website. You can find more. There's some great stuff there. Let me summarize in closing like this then. Marriage is a portrait. So it's not the original. But it's designed to portray something. And by seeing a marriage, just like by seeing a portrait, you should be able to recognize the original. When they look at your marriage, they should see Christ in the church. Therefore, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her. And wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Father, we thank you and praise you. For your beautiful design, you did it right. Lord, we mess it up. We know there's a lot of ways in which we fall short. This is your purpose and this is your plan. For humanity, the church, redemption, all things. Lord, all things in him. We just pray, God, that as we uh, live out our lives, you help us not to take it for granted or forget what Christ did for his church. Help us as men to sacrifice for our wives. And help, uh, help uh, Lord, the ladies to be able to follow you as you desire the church to as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.